You know who I miss, Jay? Gold balls. Miles, he is still around, you know. Really? I don't recall him being on any of the current teams, not Excalibur or the Marauders or... Well, that's because he's way too important to be on the current teams. I mean, he's one of the five. The five? The five mutants who run the resurrection protocols on Krakoa? The reason all the mutants, well, most of the mutants are functionally immortal now? Right, right. Uh, let's see, who else was there? Hope Summers, I think? Yup, and Elixir. That was Josh Foley, remember him? From the second generation of the New Mutants. That's the one. Uh, let's see, who else? Tempests, Eva Bell, and Proteus. And Gold Balls. And Gold Balls. Okay, the rest I can sort of see, but how does spontaneously forming and launching Gold Balls relate to the resurrection process? Oh, they're, they're not just balls. They're not just balls. They're eggs. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 285 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to us getting one step closer to... Oh, wait, no, this this is Legion Quest. We got to Legion Quest, Jay. Really? Are you sure? Not positive. Maybe it's a trick. But that said, uh, just to, to set expectations correctly, we are doing Legion Quest this episode... We're not quite doing Age of Apocalypse next episode, because there is some wrap-up we're still going to cover. But it's worth covering, trust us on this one, and then we will finally and truly get to the alternate Earth that features way too many face tattoos and way too much amazing hair. Eventually. So, I like the idea that somehow, I, I realize this isn't how it works, but that somehow as part of the coverage we could go back and prevent Legion Quest thus theoretically preventing AOA, but actually destroying the universe in the podcast? Oh, man. Oh, you know what happens? Just like with the way Legion Quest works, Apocalypse triggers his plans earlier and takes over the world, hence Age of Apocalypse. You know what would happen here? Onslaught would happen earlier, and nobody wants that. Oh, I thought you were going to say something um, IRL-related. I mean, you know, there's bad stuff in real life, too, but, ugh, Onslaught. You know, maybe Onslaught would be the real-world consequence, too. Maybe giant red armor and, you know, bad stuff, and Franklin Richards putting everyone in his head, and this is getting complicated. Yes, that's that's why we're here. Good point. Well, I'm sure glad we are. We're about to talk about Legion Quest, and this is going to mark a major, major threshold in the X-Universe. In fact, it's going to end with the all-out destruction of the X-Universe. So I feel like before we go into his quest, we should talk a little bit about how we got here, and in fact, who this Legion guy is, for new folks just tuning in, and for folks who've been around for a very long time, and for whom all of this has turned into brain goo as it has for us. Mm-hmm. Let's start that brain goo, though. Far in the distant past of some year or another that is quite imprecise given the sliding scale of comics. Right now, it's sometime in the 70s. Before he founded the X-Men, Professor Charles Xavier worked at a hospital in Israel. He'd only met one confirmed mutant before that point. That was the evil Shadow King. But Magnus, Xavier's co-worker at the hospital, sure seemed interesting. Hey, Magnus, which is to say Eric, which is to say Max, 
We know that guy. In addition to having an ass to die for and more muscles than any human being rightfully should, Magnus was hiding secrets of his own. But he wasn't the only focus of Charles's attention at the hospital. Because also there was a traumatized patient named Gabrielle Holler, who Xavier had been healing with telepathic therapy, and also putting the moves on her. Damn it, Charles! Yeah, one of the things I appreciate about the issues we're about to cover is that the longer Xavier and Gabrielle remain established history, the more writers contextualize the fact that it was deeply unethical as part of the narrative. Exactly. But does all of that stuff we just talked about sound familiar? Well, it probably should, because this was the status quo at the beginning of Uncanny X-Men number 161. That was the flashback issue where Xavier and Magneto each learned the other was a mutant and then had a falling out over how to deal with Nazi gold. Now, we mentioned Legion. Legion is a complicated guy, and in the visual, visual companion to this episode, we will link to some episodes where we talk about him in more detail. Here's what you need to know about him now. First, he is Xavier's son with Gabriel Holler. Second, he has some major complex psychiatric issues that intersect in complicated ways with his powers and tend to be portrayed very poorly in canon. Third, he was in a coma for a while for a lot of reasons, but recently woke up in the middle of an assassination attempt by Mystique. And finally, he's been having long conversations with a ghost and or hallucination of Destiny, Mystique's precognitive wife, whom Legion killed pre-coma. So, there you go. Nice and straightforward. Now, Destiny's been telling Legion, or Legion's projection of Destiny, whatevs, that if only Magneto hadn't been in the way of Xavier way back in the day, then Xavier could have made the world a much better place. Legion decides to take this advice to heart, and after X-Factor entirely fails to stop him, he runs off either to begin or to become the quarry of Legion Quest. Legion Quest is a four-part story. Now, there is a tie-in that's kind of part of it in Cable number 20. We're going to talk about that next episode. For now, we're covering the X-Men and Uncanny X-Men issues of it, and they start with Uncanny X-Men number 320, The Sun Rises in the East. Like, you know, S-O-N. This is plotted by Scott Lobdell with dialogue by Mark Wade, pencils by Roger Cruz, inks by Tom Townsend, and colors by Steve Bucolato. When last we saw Legion, two episodes previously, for those of you listening, or in a recent issue of X-Factor for those of you reading, he had just deposited X-Factor in Madripoor and headed off to do something. And here's where we find out what that something was. That's right, Legion has constructed a large force field in the middle of the Negev Desert in Israel. Sure, why not? And the Israeli army has been throwing people and vehicles at this force field for a while, which is uh, not ideal. You'd think after the first few vehicles just broke down or exploded and they lost a certain number of lives, it would be time to maybe step back and recoup and figure things out. But no, no, they just kept on going, um, and up right up until X-Men Gold Team arrived to help. Now, we've talked in recent episodes about how at this point the Gold Team and the Blue Team have been largely made irrelevant. It's mostly just various X-Men characters in the two X-Men books, Uncanny and Adjectiveless. In this story, those teams are referenced as still existing, but what's kind of weird is that they've swapped a couple of members. Specifically, Archangel is now hanging out with the blue team, and Psylocke is now hanging out with the gold team. 
There's not a justification in the story for why this has happened, but it does kind of fit in terms of where the plot needs to go, and we'll get to that later. I mean, I saw that as the main reason they got switched around, because that's what most expediently serves the story there. And for all that the gold team are a bunch of powerhouses, they are massively, massively, massively outmatched. And the way we see this is kind of cool, because the issue actually opens up in the middle of a fight between them and Legion, where they are getting their asses kicked. It's only a few pages later that we flash back to see how they got there in the first place. And I like that. I like that the story just doesn't really waste any time setting things up, because it's got other stuff to talk about. And this issue, it's only one issue to be a bridge between Legion waking up and all of the time travel shenanigans that are going to characterize the rest of Legion Quest. And it's actually really efficient storytelling. Something we've talked about a lot on this show is the challenge of building up stakes sufficiently and selling sufficiently high stakes in events like this. Legion Quest is kind of the masterclass in that. And one of the ways it does it, as Miles mentioned, is throwing us straight into the action. Not only the action, but desperate and chaotic action as Storm tries to navigate her way through the the sandstorm that is racking the inside of Legion's force field. Now, I want to go back again to when the X-Men show up, because there are a couple things that I think are worth touching on um, that are specifically period signifiers. The first of those is that someone I don't recall who mentions that they can tell things are really bad because Israel and the PLO, that's the Palestinian Liberation Organization, which at this point had just very, very recently been conditionally recognized as a, as a country by the United Nations, um, are working together. And second something Iceman says as they get off the plane when he realizes how powerful Legion has gotten. Um, he, he, he says that they are going to get, quote-unquote, ripped. And that threw me, because as far as I know, and in fact, as far as I have been able to determine looking it up and trying to trace this back subsequently, the only things that ripped generally gets used as slang for are muscly as hell, which true, they all are, but they already are when they get there, and or chemically impaired. Miles, you had friends in the 90s. Did you say ripped to mean destroyed, like non-metaphorically destroyed? I I don't recall saying so, but I do recall that the comic book based on the video game Doom was out at some point in the 90s. Might have been before this, might have been after. But that taught us all sorts of important things about ripping and tearing people's guts and how if they were huge, they would have huge guts. So maybe Iceman just likes Doom. I'm... Gonna go ahead and say that Iceman has a shaky grasp on slang. He seems like the kind of guy who who is careful to attempt to talk how the cool kids are talking and generally fails at it. It's okay, Bobby. We think you're cool. Mostly. I mean, literally, I guess. That counts. Anyway. Another thing that we learn is that Legion's coma has basically glued his mind back together. He is now sane for some value of the term, or at least in control in ways that he we've never seen him before. Uh, the X-Men finally managed to reach him, but as I mentioned, it's a wild sandstorm, and it takes a lot of fighting before Storm is finally able to get close to him, to tell him, Do not ignore me, David. I will be heard. Hmm? Oh, I've been hearing you fine, Aurora. I just wasn't listening. Fucking teenagers, am I right? Yeah, Legion is definitely taking a page out of Strife's teen angst playbook here. Oh god, Legion and Strife hanging out? They would be the worst! Okay, he is time-traveling 
to resolve his daddy issues. Right, right. I, I was going to say somewhat more constructively than Strife, but honestly, it kind of goes worse. Well, at least Legion gets cool later. Strife, not so much. Strife is absolutely and persistently uncool, and I wouldn't have him any other way. Mm-hmm. Uncool and very sharp. So back to Legion. What Legion does at this point is grab Storm and dive through time. He has just gained the ability to do that, and he's just getting the hang of it. And I think it's important to point out here that as much as time travel is a very common plot device in comics, at this point in the Marvel Universe, and especially at this point in the X-Men corner of the Marvel Universe, time travel is really, really, really hard to do. Whenever it happens, it involves pretty extreme circumstances, like all the things that the heroes in the future went through in Days of Future Past to send Kitty Pride's consciousness back, uh, all of the stuff that Excalibur went through to get back to Earth-811, like... It is hard to do, and the fact that Legion can just snap his fingers, not even snap his fingers, and send himself and Aurora to a very precise part of the past, like, that's huge. Well, and all of the things you've mentioned have involved technology or powers or people from the distant future. All of the time travel we've seen, at least in the X line, there has been some other weird shit in other books. But at least within the X-Men's context... All of the t time travel we've seen so far has involved people from the future coming back to the past with their technology or with the skills and additional knowledge they have. This, I think, is the first time we've seen someone spontaneously time travel from the present with the present as their base time. Yeah, and Legion can do that because at this point he can do basically anything. Before, when we saw him with multiple personalities, multiple identities, insert usual disclaimer about the iffy portrayal of mental health in the character Legion, but at that point, each of those identities had its own mutant power. Telekinesis, telepathy, and pyrokinesis. Like, three pretty, I'm not going to say common powers, but at least standard powers. And now he can basically just do whatever. The idea seems to be that with one identity in control of all of Legion, that he essentially has infinite power. This Legion, to me, feels intensely like the TV Legion. Yeah. Oh, man. Speaking of, oh, I'm about to start season three. I've been waiting for a friend, and I am so impatient. <laughs> yeah, I need to do that, too. Anyway, time travel. So Legion grabs Storm and dives through time, and he specifically decides he's going to take her back to the day the plane crashed into her family's house, killing her parents. And he tells her this, and then whisks her away back to the present before she can stop it. And he's been driven before, he's been mean before, but it's always been the other personalities. And it's never been quite this kind of cruelty to prove a point. So this reminded me a bit of Jamie Braddock, another reality warper who does some really bad shit. And I think where the difference is for me is that Jamie Braddock isn't trying to prove a point, like you said David was, Jay. And here, it just seems so much like David trying to convince Storm, not that she is powerless, not that she's too weak, but that the world will fuck you up and there's nothing you can do about it. He's got this intense, almost despair that he just wants to inflict upon the rest of the world. And for me, maybe I'm Psychology 101-ing this too much, but I would attribute this to David's loneliness and isolation. He's trying to connect to people however he can, and it's not very constructive right now. See, I read what he was trying to convey somewhat differently. To me, that scene and what he's demonstrating there is all about Storm's irrelevance. 
the fact that he has the power to make this thing happen, but he's pulling it away. What use is anyone else in the face of what he can now do? I kind of like that we each have those takes that we disagree on that one, because I think the ambiguity with Legion of whether he's a product of his circumstances or he's just evil, and I'm referring to Legion at this point. Later on, he's certainly not evil. But I think that ambiguity really makes the character interesting. Yeah, Legion's a really, really interesting character in general, and definitely no less so here, where he's... Yeah, he really goes from antagonist to villain over the course of this arc, but for now he's pretty much still in antagonist space. Now, once they get once once Storm and Legion get back, the X-Men manage to get the Blackbird through into the Force Bubble bubble, but Legion disappears it and he's about to pop back in time again. But Storm decides that this time all of the X-Men are going to hitch along, which they do through some kind of complicated psychic shenanigans except for Jean, who anchors herself using, uh, they don't actually say the focus totality of her powers, but it's the focus totality of her powers. So that means that whenever Legion got off to, he's there with Iceman, Bishop, Psylocke, and Storm. But that's all on Earth. What's happening in space? Meanwhile, in space, this weird little guy comes to wake up Lalandra. Lalandra, as you may recall, is the empress of the Shi'ar, one of the main forces in the galaxy, one of the main imperial forces in the galaxy. She is also the former main squeeze of Charles Xavier. They recently split for political reasons, and she's getting her first good nap since this has happened, explicitly, when a weird little man comes to wake her up. This is the guardian of the Mkron crystal, the Mkron crystal. How are we saying that? It's been a really long time since we said it. Mkron? I suspect that Mkron or Macron is correct, but the cartoon said Mkron back in the day, and so I said Mkron, and I'm going to keep saying it that way, damn it. I love the extent to which the cartoon has defined how things are pronounced by virtue of having been the first space where they were pronounced aloud a lot. Exactly. I mean, that's how I learned to say Magneto. I think it was an old issue with Spider-Man and his amazing friends, maybe? One of those. Episode? Episode. Issue? Eh. Podcasting makes those concepts confusing. Yeah, I was going to say, that's if, if, if we don't mix those two up at least once per whatever the hell it is we're recording right now, then it's, it's a wildly atypical issue. Or episode. Whichever. Same difference, really. Anyway, this guy is the guardian of the Amcron crystal. That is the crystal at the center of reality that basically holds the universe together. And it's having some serious serious problems. Man, if I had a dime for every time I was awakened with news of the end of the world, I'd have a lot of dimes. Maybe that's what Bella's up to every morning. Like, sure, squawking, I always attribute it to her being hungry, but maybe she knows something I don't about the ending of reality. Conversely, maybe this is just the Crystal Guardian's way of saying he wants to be fed. Oh, man, he's just, like, standing on the laundress chest going, Meow! Meow! So we should talk about the Emkron Crystal, because while it doesn't have have a lot of page space here, it's got a very significant role. It's kind of, in fact, at the center of what's going to happen. So way back in the Phoenix Saga, not the Dark Phoenix Saga, but the Phoenix Saga leading up to it, back when Jean, well, not Jean, but Phoenix, was wearing green and gold— Mad Emperor Deken of the Shi'ar Empire, who was running it at the time, was trying to do some nasty nonsense with the Emkron crystal that was basically going to end reality. And so Phoenix used her cosmic powers to kind of fix all that in a pretty epic, awesome way. 
again, the Emkron crystal is the core of reality, but it also basically is reality. The crystal gets screwed. Everything is screwed. Exactly. So this is a legit thread. And on that cliffhanger, we come to X-Men number 40, The Killing Time. Written by Fabian Nicieza, penciled by Andy Hubert, inked by Matt Ryan, and colored by Kevin Summers. So, in a way, Uncanny number 320, the issue we just talked about, that's kind of just a, a prologue or a prelude to Legion Quest. The meat of the plot starts right here. So wait, you're saying that Legion Quest hasn't started yet? That's true! We're not there yet, gentle listeners. Well, except we are now. Okay, now we are. But we weren't until right now. Okay, now. And now. Okay, now for real. So, because of that time jump, the rest of Legion Quest is really told in two parallel threads. One taking place in the present um, of the mid-90s, and one taking place in wherever in the past Legion jumped to. Um, and or Charles Xavier's memories of that time. That, we'll learn, is 20 years prior, so I guess for our purposes, at least when this comic came out, the mid-70s. So let's go right back there to the mid-70s, where Charles Xavier compliments Magneto on the light, sturdy, maneuverable wheelchair that Magneto has made, and then Xavier steps out of it, because, yeah, this is from the era where they were both working together back in Israel. Again, you may recall this, well, from a number of mentions, but specifically from Uncanny X-Men number 161, which we mentioned earlier in this episode. That was a flashback story where Xavier and Magneto were working in an Israeli hospital. That's the one where Baron Strucker attacked and he used his Satan Claw, which is basically my favorite name for a comic book weapon ever, to try to extract the location of Hitler's hidden gold from the mind of Gabriel Haller. I mean, it was a really sad, tragic story, but Satan Claw and Nazi gold inside somebody's brain. Uh, Gabrielle Haller, incidentally, is the woman who would later become David Haller, Legion's mother. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot going on back in, back in Bronze Age comics, you know? So this is before Xavier and Magneto, in that same issue, reveal their mutant powers to each other. At this point, they're just two dudes working in a hospital, and let's be real, being, like, pretty flirty with each other. Yeah, this is, this, the, the mutant metaphor as it plays into this is definitely two men trying to figure out ways to make passes at each other or communicate mutual attraction without it getting too weird. That said, I mean, even queer goggles aside, and only aside for a moment, I really like the way their dynamic is written. It's friendly, it's respectful, it's intimate. Like, I buy this as as a friendship that would later grow into the intense, intense dynamic that these two guys are going to have. Like, it really does feel like the beginning of that. Yeah, absolutely. It's also, I mean, I had, it's been a while since I'd gone back to these, and I try to be aware of the fact that, you know, my queer goggles are, are pretty much surgically implanted and, and sort of, you know, be like, okay, well, authorial intent, no, no, this is, this is, this is so gay, y'all. This is so, this is just exceptionally, fantastically gay. Actually, fantastically bisexual, because they're, they're what, what's sort of implied that they're both shooting for is is, is some sort of triadic um, arrangement with Gabrielle Haller. But, but yeah, um, these two men are deeply in love with one another. Another person in the hospital who they're not in love with is a dark-haired young man with no memory. Yeah, it's David. He's back here. And he's lost his reason for being here. He's also 
lost his phenomenal giant stand-up hair. It's just it's just normal hair. Wait, did you recognize him at this point? Because I absolutely did not. Honestly, I only recognized him because I knew where the story was going. Yeah, he's he's a John Doe at this point, and if you had just been reading along at the time, you may well not have known who he was. All we've got is that he doesn't know who he is or have much memory, he's got dark hair which looks really normal, and he's pretty amicable. But it doesn't take long for things to get weird, because this John Doe senses Magneto's loneliness and floods Magnus's mind with visions of the Holocaust, of his wife Magda dying, of Magneto using his powers to kill Magda's killers— And in these visions, one thing jumped out at me, which is that the Nazi soldiers in the vision, they're these sort of tusked demons, presumably, you know, the metaphorical way that Magneto saw them at the time. But that's the same way they were drawn in that flashback issue. That's the same way they were drawn inside Gabriel Haller's memories. Oh, interesting. So you're thinking that, what, that it's David kind of overlaying his mother's memories of those things, or at least what he remembers of those over Magneto's memories? Maybe. Or, to take it a little further and probably reach a fair bit, Xavier, Magneto, and Gabrielle had pretty intense psychological relationships. Maybe Xavier inadvertently let some of that stuff filter between the three of them telepathically. Oh, that's a fascinating idea. You know, a lot has been made in comics over the years and in different chronologies over the dynamic between Xavier, Magneto, and Moira McTaggart. And... I would be very interested in seeing more with the dynamic between Xavier Magneto and, and Gabrielle Haller. Gabrielle's just a great character in general. I would always love to see more of her. Yeah, she's really interesting. She's also a character who, way more than either of them, has very much built her own independent life in which they are largely guests during the David stories. She's an ambassador. She is extremely politically powerful um and yeah she's just not that plugged into either of them or either of their lives now i think it's important to note that what legion does to magneto he does pretty much inadvertently it's it's a reflexive thing and he's not even entirely aware of who he is let alone of what he's doing or how um and he's definitely not prepared for the intensity of Magneto's reaction. What in the name of God are you? Who are you to remind me of all I've lost? Animal! And David, who still doesn't know who he is or what's going on, responds, No, I'm sorry, Magnus. I I didn't know what, what you'd suffered. Oh, Lord, what's wrong with me? Who am I? Why am I here? So Magneto runs the hell away and interrupts Xavier and Gabrielle on the nice stroll they're taking, telling Xavier, hey, he's found someone with that, you know, that genetic quirk they've been discussing, and Xavier's gotta stop this guy. I mean, help this guy. One of those. Something like that. And I really like how Xavier just quietly, respectfully listens and responds and gently calms Eric down. They work so, so well together, you know, when they're not trying to kill each other. I mean... Even then, sometimes. And when they get back, David is collapsed on the floor, on fire with visions of 90s X-Men trading cards hovering above him. Now, remember, Xavier's only met one confirmed mutant before, that being the Shadow King. And he was scary, but he wasn't, you know, this whole thing. And the narration sells it pretty well. 
The writhing figure before him is a validation of both his greatest desire to find others like himself and his greatest fear that those with mutant abilities may be a danger to themselves or worse, society. Xavier is just so young and new here and it makes me a little sad that the art just draws him the same way that we see him in the present. Like, I kind of wish there was a better visual signifier for both him and Magneto to show them as 20 years younger. I guess with Magneto, that gets confusing because there was the whole him turning into a baby and getting re-aged into a younger body thing, but, you know, still. Yeah, Magneto's age is deeply complicated. Xavier's not in his original body either at this point, is he? Uh, this is his original body. Yeah, yeah. He, uh, got kind of- No, no, this is, but in the present he's not. Oh, no, it, uh, it got rebuilt after the brood embryo burst out of him that one time. Yeah, exactly. X-Men. X-Men. And speaking of the X-Men, you remember those four that came into the past with Legion? They don't. They don't, because, like David, they've lost their memories. Unlike David, they don't just automatically get them back very quickly. They're just hanging out here trying to figure out why they showed up wearing weird ski suits with X's all over them and how they know each other. Also, little note here. So Bishop is reading a newspaper, which this being Israel, of course, is in Hebrew. And I hadn't thought about for years the fact that most written Hebrew doesn't bother printing the vowel marks, which are usually like little symbols under the the consonants. Back when I was in Hebrew school, that horrified me. I was trying to learn Hebrew phonetically, and the idea of reading it without vowels, like, I would just recoil. I would I would faint dead away. I don't think he's trying to learn it, because he's, he's speaking Hebrew pretty fluently by the next scene he's in. Bishop's a smart guy, and dedicated. One little detail I like here, because they have realized they have powers, is that when Bobby uses his ice powers to ice up, he turns into a snowman form, like from the very, very, very beginning of X-Men back in the 60s before he learned how to do the crystal ice form. Aww. So that's going on in the past. What about the present? What about the mid-90s? Well, Jean is the one remaining member of the gold team still in Israel, and she was able to call for help telepathically, but is currently basically cocooned off because she had to shut herself away to keep from being dragged into the past. So the X-Men are looking for her, and Archangel is the one that finds her. Little note here, he's wearing that old blue and white uniform he used to wear back in the day that has a halo symbol on the chest. It's blue and white here, it'll be red and white later. I messed up a while back in the Phalanx Covenant by saying that the red and white part was new, but it does go back and forth, and it's very confusing, and it sort of goes back and forth at random. You know what I miss? I miss his costume with the suspenders. Oh man, that late Silver Age one? Yeah, that was that was a thing. Like, it was terrible, but it was also kind of amazing. He was the avenging suspendered angel. So, he finds Jean, and um, they manage to wake her up with the psychic equivalent of smelling salts. And she fills them in. Legion's integrated and omnipotent, and he took the other four X-Men into Xavier's own past. So, it's time for a plan... And since this plan that it's time for involves a plan about time, eh, eh, they call in some help from Cable. And also Domino, because she's awesome. Well, and they're a team. Now, unfortunately for the X-Men, Cable's time travel gear is underwater. There's no way to access it. Dubiously fortunately for the X-Men, this is when the entire sky splits open and a gigantic hologram of Queen Lalandra of the Shi'ar, as we recall, Charles Xavier's ex, appears. And she tells them all about how reality is being threatened by what's going on in the past, 
And to underscore this, okay, Jay, you remember how we knew that X-Men number 137, the climax of the Dark Phoenix saga, was a big deal because Uatu the Watcher was watching? Yes. This time, there are seven, seven freaking Watchers behind Lilandra as she tells the X-Men about this. So essentially, this issue is saying, hey, this is seven times more important than arguably the best superhero comic ever written. I mean, tell yourself whatever you gotta tell yourself to get through the day, guys. That said, um, when I was a kid, I definitely had an oh shit seven watchers moment, so uh, I guess it worked. Yeah, actually, it's a really big deal because the watchers' whole shtick is they watch. They do not interfere. They are not allowed to interfere. Occasionally, Uatu, who's the one assigned to Earth, kind of screws that up, but... In general, it's extremely heavily frowned upon, so not only one Watcher breaking that rule, but seven? That's serious business. Do you know how many people they would normally be watching masturbate? A lot. Them and Ceiling Cat. Is Ceiling Cat one of the Watchers? Seems plausible. That brings us to Uncanny X-Men number 321, Old Lang Syne. This issue is plotted by Scott Lobdell, scripted by Mark Wade, penciled by Ron Garney, inked by Dan Green, Joseph Rubenstein, and Tim Townsend, so a bit of a rush, and colored by Steve Bucolato. Now, the cover of this issue desperately entreats us to read cable number 20 alongside it. Uh, like I said, we'll get to that next episode, but also, you shouldn't do that, because this is chapter 3 of Legion Quest, and cable number 20 spoils the big ending of chapter 4 of Legion Quest, so damn it, Marvel, we're not gonna listen to you. Also, it reads perfectly well without. Now, in the present, the Shi'ar are rigging up some fancy space-space time travel tech. And honestly, I, I think it's going to be simplest to just let Beast explain their plan. I feel like he makes it all pretty clear. They claim that this construct will facilitate our little chronal fishing expedition. Apparently, its energies will augment and coordinate your various psi powers, allowing Jean to hold Cable's body together telekinetically, while Charles telepathically jumpstarts Cable's latent time travel abilities. With luck, Cable's mind will be projected through the decades, allowing his ambient consciousness to find out our wayward teammates wherever they may be lost, and warn them that they must thwart Legion's machinations immediately, if not sooner. So, two things, Jay. First off, Cable's latent time travel abilities? What? Ooh, I zeroed in on that too, and it kind of makes sense, because his sister's got them. His sister, who doesn't exist in this reality, or at least wasn't born in this reality, and instead, he was. So, I guess it kind of makes sense. Miles, the Summers Gray family is exceptionally complicated, and they can do a lot of stuff. Sure can. Second thing, I really love that the technology that Beast just described is basically a big old tower of telepaths. Like, you know how in the present, modern tech is impressive because it's tiny? Like, the phone you have in your pocket is better than what sent a spaceship to the moon the first time? Yeah, yeah, not in 90s Marvel. More is more. Bigger is better. Are they just balanced on each other's shoulders, Hawk style? You know, with like some, some technological Shi'ar buttresses. <laughs> buttresses. Now that's in the present. In the past that they want to go back to, Xavier and Magneto are in a bar doing vodka shots and flirting. Until some assholes start haranguing an amputee and Charles Xavier starts a bar fight. Now, Charles claims in the aftermath of this that this is his first bar fight. Do we believe him? 
I think maybe it's the first bar fight he's thrown a punch in, but I'm pretty sure he's telepathically manipulated people into having bar fights in the past just for his own amusement. Yeah, that that seems inevitable. Also, wow, uh, Charles and and Magnus or Eric or whatever he's going by at this point probably have enough muscles between them to, like, spin the earth on its axis or something. Body by Ron Garney. God, this 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 whole story, it's so it's so gay, Miles. It's so gay. You know what totally makes it even gayer? Yes, I do. The caption that appears partway through this fight, which reads, I kid not, 14 sailors later. If I had a dime. That is that is my new favorite transitional phrase, though. Like, I just want to use that every time you go from one scene to another. 14 sailors later. <laughs> right. In the aftermath, there's also a great callback beat to a conversation that they have while they're fighting back to back. Magneto starts... What was it you said again? Any dream worth having... Is a dream worth fighting for. Ha! Fine and noble words, my friend. Someday I'll carve them on your tombstone. On the boat back, Xavier questions the ethics of getting involved with one of his patients. Which, yes, you should question those ethics, Charles Xavier, because it is a bad ethical choice. It is, in fact, specifically unethical. Also, it's just a bad plan, because every time you do that, you'll end up having a kid who then goes back in time, kills you, and ends the world. Well, will you, though? Because if you if, if he kills you, you won't have the kid, and that's part of what creates this whole set of problems to begin with. Now, Magneto talks Charles into going ahead and going for it, and this is where my notes just sort of devolve into just KISS ALREADY in all caps. Unfortunately, this queer glory is interrupted by my least favorite scene in probably all of the early to mid-90s. Yeah, um, a now-recovered Legion goes and seduces his mom-to-be while disguised as his dad-to-be. Miles, this is the worst Back to the Future remake that I have ever seen. Freaking seriously? Also, son, Tom Lair has some words of wisdom for you. Okay, so, Jay, I move that we just strike this from canon. Like, it contributes nothing to the plot, it's a horrible thing that happens for basically no reason, it makes Legion essentially irredeemable, and it removes Gabrielle's agency, and it's never really mentioned again. Can we just say that this didn't happen? I'm okay with that, because I actually lost count of the ways in which it's not okay, because there are so very many of them. The thing is, though, I think it's worth acknowledging because it's something that someone wrote and thought was appropriate to have happen here in this complex villainy slash redeemable characterness. And part of what makes Legion interesting as a character is the ways that writers in the present and characters in the present sort of struggle to resolve the pieces of his backstory and the things that he's done with the the combined understanding that he wasn't necessarily acting of his own volition exactly, but also that he did a massive, massive amount of very serious harm. Yeah, no, that's that's a really good point, actually. Xavier senses that bad business is afoot, and he and Magneto hightail it back to the hospital from the boat they've just gotten off, leaving behind Bobby and Bishop, who have gotten jobs on the docks, where Bobby is weirdly classist, despite having no idea who he even is. He does have a pretty good beard, though. Yeah, no, he is he is really working that look. Less so Bishop, whose pants fit really, really awfully. But thankfully, that doesn't stop Psychic Projection Cable from jumping on into the past. 
and from honing in on Bishop as the biggest local temporal anomaly as well as the least appropriately dressed one. Cable uses his superpower of yelling to get the time-lost X-Men back on track and into their own heads. Listen to me. You must remember. You are the X-Men and you have a mission. Even as we speak, time is unraveling. The world we know is shattering because Legion has come to change the past. You've got to wake up from your haze. And you've got to stop him. You've got to! Now, the X-Men aren't the only ones with a mission. And here we learn specifically what Legion's is. It's been hinted going back pretty far at this point. But now we know absolutely for sure he is in the past to kill Eric before he can become Magneto. And that takes us to the finale of Legion Quest, X-Men number 41, Dreams Die. Written by Fabian Nicieza, penciled by Andy Hubert and Ron Garney, inked by Matt Ryan, and colored by Kevin Summers and Digital Chameleon. Let's stay in the past for the moment, because I want to finish up with the present. Let's stay in the past where Xavier wakes up and receives a psychic call from Psylocke. Who knows who Xavier is, despite the fact that he has no idea who any of the X-Men are. Yeah, so you know that theory you had about mutants? You have no idea how accurate it sort of was. Also, they have really fancy costumes. Hooray! Xavier psionically knocks out Gabrielle to, to keep nominally to keep her out of trouble because, you know, as we all know, condescending paternalism is Charles Xavier's second superpower. And he runs into the fight, and he is so in over his head. This is a Charles Xavier who has no idea who these people are. He has certainly never been on a super team. Although, interestingly, he does recognize Storm, because a few weeks ago, he met a pint-sized Storm who picked his pocket right before he fought the Shadow King. That's a cool little bit right there. I do really love that detail. Now, the X-Men once again go all out, and once again, it's not enough. They just cannot stop Legion. And Legion manages to floor them and to grab up Magneto, who is appalled at what this upstart jerk is doing. You dare condemn me for something I haven't done yet? This is your morality? This is your justice? Man, what a Philip K. Dick. <laughs> Legion explains that Xavier spent so long fighting Magneto in the time between this past and the present of the 90s that Xavier couldn't help enough people, that Xavier couldn't help his son. And this is what it all comes down to. This is the core of David's, David's motivation. He thinks that maybe if Xavier had not been so busy fighting all the time that he could have helped his son be more okay. And this is where it gets really sad. Well, and that Charles and David and Gabrielle could have just been a nuclear family. Yeah, yeah. But as Legion is about to execute Magneto... Of course, Charles Xavier dives in front of his friends to absorb the killing blow. For Charles Francis Xavier, there was never a choice. Today, all his perceptions of reality were ripped away, and he saw a glimpse of what his life might have been. Four noble men and women, mutants like him, who in his name, were willing to risk their all to save a man who would become their enemy. And one desperate madman willing 
almost eager to kill in that name. His name. His friend. Charles Francis Xavier could not allow that. And in one desperate move, his future, his life, are sacrificed. For there was never a choice. And time breaks at that point. This paradox is so big that time freaking breaks. This is what Joff, the guardian of the Emcron Crystal, was telling Lalandra. This was what Lalandra was telling the X-Men. That this is too much of a paradox for the universe to bear. I love that that dude's name is Joff. Yeah, you know, he's a little little robot troll dude. He's pretty great. Is he a robot? He is technically a robot, yes. Also, Wolverine killed him way back in the day, but uh, he got better because, you know, robot. It happens. But... But goddamn, Fabian Nicieza, like, this is a moment you have to sell. And I think, honestly, you have to sell it largely, if not entirely, with narration or with dialogue. And Fabian does. And Legion realizes a split second later what he's done as he himself discorporates. Because if Charles Xavier is dead at this point, David Holler never existed. And this isn't exactly how time works in the Marvel Universe. This isn't exactly how time streams split. That actually is explained, but not quite yet. We'll get to that later. One thing that is happening in the past, though, the past that is now completely disassociated from the present, is Apocalypse. Watching the news. And... He is very, very happy about what he sees. Things are taking place a decade earlier, two decades earlier even, than his uh, sinister associate had predicted. And he's got some big plans. As for myself, these events simply mean that the Order of Ascension begins now! And may the fittest survive the the challenge! has been wrecked, but it's going to take a little while for those reverberations to get to the future. So there are still a few minutes left before all of the characters who are still in, in the 90s actually die, which means that unlike their Time Unstuck counterparts, they've got time to see it coming. And also unlike the characters in all the other books, because in Excalibur, X-Factor, X-Force, Gen X, they're all taken by surprise. But the X-Men, the X-Men themselves, they know what's going to happen. And we have a few just lovely, lovely scenes as they wait for the ends to come. I love apocalypse stories. I love end-of-the-world stories. Not post-apocalypse. I mean, those are great, too. But I love the idea of thinking about what you would do, what people would do if they knew everything was ending, what they would consider to be their highest priority. And here we see some of that. There's actually this trilogy of apocalyptic short stories of anthologies that I reviewed part of at one point, but also just really, really love. And the first book is called The End is Nigh, and it's specifically stories about an impending and inevitable but not quite their apocalypse. And they are just wrenching in ways that no actual apocalyptic stories I've read had the capacity to be like they they are it's so intense and I mean the whole the whole trilogy is great but that book in particular just really really blew my mind I really need to read that apparently I do love a a good heartbreak 
one of the scenes we get here is Xavier and the hologram of Lalandra, because she's still in Shi'ar space, waiting for the end to come together. And remember, Xavier and Lalandra broke up very recently in X-Men Unlimited number five, but they still have a lot of history. And there's this wonderful little image as they try to hold hands and Xavier's hand just passes through Lalandra's holographic one. He says, yeah, that this is so utterly unfair. And she responds, It always has been for us, Charles. But sadly, that is a weight we chose to bear, isn't it? How sad then that we die as we were forced to live together in spirit, yet still light years apart. Oof. And, and Warren Kenneth Worthington III, for his part, is moping about how he just, just finally got together with, with a girl in like a really functional relationship, and now the world is ending. But he eventually decides, as he realizes how close that end is, that who he can spend it with is two of his, two of his best friends, and he finds Scott and Jean holding each other's hands and ask if they mind company, and Jean offers her hand, and they just all wait and watch. And it's beautiful. And this right here, I think, is why Archangel and Psylocke swaps teams with no explanation. Because we know we needed a telepath in the past. And it couldn't be Jean, because Jean should be here in the present to be with Scott as the world ends. And as a side bonus, Warren gets to be with two of his best friends, side by side, thinking maybe about what Jubilee told him when she left the X-Men, about how sometimes you just have to tell people you care about them. You can't just stay alone and aloof all the time. This is a nice little subtle payoff to that right there. This is a role, too, that I think kind of had to be Warren. Like, I can't see Iceman or Beast really doing that, and I feel like having at least three of the original five together feels really right there. But probably my favorite scene from this issue, from any of the issues where reality shatters, is with Rogue and Gambit. We've talked about this before because we've specifically compared pretty much every single other well-drawn kiss we see to this one, and all of them come out unfavorably because this is maybe the best-drawn kiss in X-Men ever. It's wonderful because, of course, Rogue and Gambit have never been able to kiss, not really because of Rogue's whole power thing. I mean, yes, she kisses people when she's using her powers in combat, but whatever, storyline, it works. And Gambit's actually been surprisingly respectful about that under most scenes by most writers. I'm sad that that's surprising. I just mean compared to his reputation. And here, she is the one, as they're just holding each other, watching the crystallization wave, that turns to him and kisses him. And it's so perfectly drawn. The surprise on his face, but still the response, the passion, her just completely giving in to what she's always wanted to do in general, but especially with him, the art sells it magnificently. And as the crystal wave passes, we get a two-page spread of frozen crystal scenes, and all of these are from the finales of the other X-Books. We also get a scene of Adam X fighting Eric the Red. Because in a story that's about lost potential, we have the greatest lost potential of the early to mid-90s because this is basically all we're going to see of Adam X in an X book aside from him being parodied ever. He's going to show up in Captain Marvel for like a couple of issues and reference fighting Eric the Red, which I guess is what's happening here, and that's it. Oh, Adam, we hardly knew you. No one deserves Eric the Red. But the narration is just so fatalistic because 
the world is ending in the midst of everybody's stories. Like what Archangel was talking about, that's going on with everybody. And all of the books almost end in the middle of big climaxes or cliffhangers. And that's it. We don't get resolution, at least not for a while. I love that. I love how this end comes, that most people don't see it coming, that there's not prep, that things just break mid-thread, and that Marvel actually marketed as it as the end of everything. That is wild. I totally believed them. To be fair, I was very young, but still. I just, that's so impressive. That's such a cool move. So that's, uh, that's it. That's the end of the world. But we'll talk about more end of the world stuff next episode, like we said. Because you know what? There's no end to questions. And you've got several. Brian Joseph asks on Twitter, How did we get from monstrous Krakoa in giant size number one to the docile home to all mutant kind that is Hickman's Dawn of X? Ah, Krakoa, the island that walks like a man. I, I love that phrase so much. It's so straight out of old monster comics. So... The answer is, it's both complicated and simple. Let's talk about the complicated part first. The complicated part is that we've actually had a number of different Krakoas. Because as you may recall, at the end of Giant Size X-Men number one, the X-Men collectively rocket Krakoa off into space, which is a pretty cool way to deal with a villain, I gotta say. Now, in Deadly Genesis, that Krakoa was also retconned to not have been an intelligent entity. And there was also a recent journey into mystery one-shot where we learned more about its origin, but whatever. The point is, it was off in space. And while it was off in space, we met Son of Krakoa. That was from that Excalibur fill-in issue where Nightcrawler ended up on an island and the island was actually a spore that fell off Krakoa right before Krakoa went into space and Kurt sort of killed it and it was kind of messed up. There's also the Danger Grotto in Generation X. Like, their training room, their danger room, that's actually a tiny piece of Krakoa. At least according to the internet, I actually don't remember that part at all. But the internet never lies, so I totally believe it. And then in 2008's Young X-Men number 7, the team encountered yet another Krakoa. That one's gone now, too. My favorite Krakoa, though, as I suspect yours is, Jay, is Kid Krakoa. Do you want to talk about Kid Krakoa? Well, I think this is the Krakoa that we had seen most immediately before this one, and so I assumed the one that this one was derived from or related to. In Volume 1, Number 1 of Wolverine and the X-Men, the all-new, all-evil Kid Hellfire Club planted yet another Krakoa under the Jean Grey school as a trap. But thanks to Quentin Choir and Rachel Grey, that Krakoa was able to basically make friends with the X-Men and helped defend the school and became a living, sentient part of the campus. It also grew diamonds on trees out of itself, which uh, was probably a good thing because the school's previous income had come from Wolverine and Quentin Choir cheating out in space casinos. You say that like it's not awesome. Oh, it's totally awesome. It's just they almost got killed after they did it. Man, Wolverine and the X-Men was such a phenomenal series. It really, really was. It's, it's. I think, one of the best things to come out of the X-Line um, and from uh, that era in general. Oh, absolutely. So maybe Kid Krakoa is the same Krakoa that is where all the mutants are living right now. But it might also be the original Krakoa, because after it got sent off into space, it was actually found by the Stranger. You remember that mustache alien from, like, the 60s from X-Men number 11? And then it was freed from the Stranger's collection by one of the Eternals in a 1990 issue of Quasar. 
All of that said, a lot of what we get in House of X and Powers of Ten and in the Dawn of X books would strongly imply that the Krakoa the X-Men are on right now is the original Krakoa. I won't go into too great details because this is still some pretty current stuff, but the short version is the current Krakoa has enough ancient history that ties into enough stuff that it's probably the original. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, The Cy Spurrier run on X-Men Legacy is such an iconic take on Legion that hasn't been effectively revisited since that series ended. How would you reintegrate David Holler into the X-Universe now, given all the Krakoa business? Would he be down with hanging out on the island, or still think the X-Men are a bunch of deluded fools? So, the place I automatically go back to in response to that question is actually from before the Spurrier run, and that's from Age of X. Age of X is a splinter universe. It's a a contained splinter universe that's based on David's kind of biggest subconscious desire, which is to be central, have a critical purpose, and be important sort of in the world of mutants. And to, to be a hero, but be, you know, an indispensable hero. And I could see that David, and I could also kind of see current David being super into, into Krakoa if he got to be part of it at a fundamental level or in an interesting kind of diagonal way. So, you know, being Xavier's wild card or somehow a partial backup of the five or something like that. That said, given how powerful he is and given what he does, unless he's specifically being held in reserve, it seems wildly unlikely to me that he is going to emerge at this point. It seems like we probably should have seen him at this point if he's part of Krakoa's ecosystem. See, I kind of feel like we shouldn't see David. I kind of feel like the end of Cy Spurrier's run was a really good last chapter in in David's story. I kind of feel like it's almost like how in DC we haven't seen Jack Knight Starman since the end of the James Robinson run. And I know part of that is that that was in James Robinson's contract that nobody else could write Jack. But when you have such a good the end for a character, I kind of feel like maybe leave it be. And the Peter Milligan Legion series that came out a year or two ago, I kind of feel like was just evidence for that. Like it wasn't a bad story, but after the incredibly good ending of Spurrier's run, it just felt sort of meh. So... If you are going to bring David back, I feel like you have to do so in a way that is either as good and as big as Cy Spurrier left things, or at the very least exists in conversation with the end of that story. Although, given Charles Xavier, given the ways in which his egotism has evolved into fairly intense megalomania at this point— and given the power he has at his fingertips right now, do you really see him not tracking Legion down, not involving him? That's a really good point. And uh, yeah, that could actually be fascinating. So uh, we'll see what comes up. Now, we are a fully listener-supported podcast, and some levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and or concepts. Claremont may be gone, but his angry narrator remains. The world is broken. Pick up any newspaper, open any website, flip on any TV, hell, just step outside. Our oceans rise as corruption barricades itself into the halls of power. No matter what you may wish, Dave Tomain, you know in your heart that it's too much for one person to fix. You've dedicated yourself to doing what you can where you can. Not so, Kylie Peterson. Where you've become complacent, 
Kylie believes that a single grand stroke can change everything, not knowing that in her eagerness, she will merely hasten the inevitable end she fights to stave off. And uh, on that bleak note, I think uh, the, the microphone goes over to Legion himself. I feel so much better after that long nap, and so powerful. Why, I think I could even travel through time. There are so many people I can help with just a tweak or two to the past. It's like Longshot says, if my intentions are pure, nothing can go wrong. It's been a hard last few years in much of the world, and I know that Heather Hopes had as rough a time as the rest of us. But I know, I'll go back to her childhood and cheer her up. Maybe adding something colorful and happy to a memorable time. Banana peels are a beautiful shade of yellow. I'll leave one of those right in front of her as she takes her first steps. Oh, what joy she'll experience to discover it. And with all the uncertainty of the present day, I'm sure that James Margadent worries about whether it's okay to relax. Oh, here we go. I'll travel back in time to the middle of the night after young James has had a really hard day. And I'll wait stealthily at the foot of the bed until James is tossing and turning from bad dreams. Then I'll crow out the good news as loudly as I can as I shake my sleeping new friend awake. Everything's going to be fine! Wait, what do you mean, butterfly effect? Do you mean that thing that, uh, what's her name, Psylocke does when she uses her powers? Why would I worry about that? And with that... At least for as long as this timeline stays intact, Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter. New episodes come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com until the Emcron crystal crystallizes and shatters everything. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions to every episode, past, present, and possibly future. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air, ad-free, and unshattered, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, the world ends. I mean, you know, more. So Magneto's re- So what happens? Is that there's beeping. As Legion gradually backs up out of the hospital room. <laughs> Legion's new power is that he can turn into a truck. Oh, man. Real I'll... shitty truck. It's just a moving truck somewhere in Queens. That's it. Maybe it's a golf cart. Maybe he can turn into a golf cart. <laughs> you were saying. <laughs> oh, that's got to be a really depressing transformer to be.